You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. We're happy again today to be joined by our guests from the previous two episodes, Dale Humberg and Ken Babcock. They're going to continue our discussion about uh, waterfowl harvest management, the history of it. We concluded the previous episode with the Migratory Bird Treaty Act uh, and challenges to it, the classic case of Missouri versus Holland that made it all the way to the Supreme Court and basically upheld, uh, in, in not so many words, upheld the constitutionality of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act or the federal government's enforcement of it. So now we're going to move into a, the transition era, you know, when the federal, jur- federal government had been given jurisdiction, it had been upheld, and now the states are, are wanting to become important partners in this process. So Dale and Ken, thank you again for joining us here on the podcast. Hi, Mike. Great to be back. Okay. I want to do a quick recap just to put a finer point on the Migratory Bird Treaty Act or the Migratory Bird Treaty and what it uh, what it eliminated. I think in an earlier discussion that we might have had offline, Ken, I had proposed to you a, a question about, you know, in word, did the Migratory Bird Treaty end market hunting? Did it end the sale of wild game and uh, the, or the migratory birds? And in fact, it did. There's a very specific language about that, that, that it brought, brought an end to the way of life of many people back in the day. And so this was a this was not an easy pill to swallow for a lot of people, for a lot of the state governments. Uh, we've, as I've already introduced on this episode, the Missouri versus Holland case. But then, you know, okay, so you've taken care of the the state and their uh, their opposition to this, but there are still a lot of individuals that had made a living uh, off of this resource, uh, the migratory bird resource, and they weren't just going to stop their their activities overnight. There continued to be a lot of violations and continued to be uh, the need for enforcement. So as we got beyond 1918, uh, Ken, what type of enforcement actions needed to be taken? Was there money available for enforcement? What type of uphill battle did we face in regard to actual in-the-field enforcement of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act? Well, Mike, I, I'm sure, you, as you can imagine, as we can all imagine, that the uh, the sting from the Supreme Court decision that, that clearly gave the federal government the authority to, to control and regulate uh, the harvest of all migratory birds, as you stated, did not set well. And uh, in many instances, the state said, well, okay, federal government, if this is your responsibility uh, and your authority, you take care of it. And there were many state agencies that said, we're not going to enforce these regulations. And as a result, many people felt somewhat empowered to continue the activity. But uh, as time went on, uh, and we'll get into discussions later on and probably into the late 20s and early 30s, 
uh, and waterfowl populations began to decline, there became a bigger interest at that time in terms of enforcement. And keep in mind that initially the authority for carrying out the provisions of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act was given to the Secretary of Agriculture. Uh, and the uh, Secretary of Agriculture probably had bigger fish to fry, so to speak, uh, in terms of carrying out his responsibility than worrying about uh, enforcing migratory game bird laws. There's a classic book that most waterfowl managers will be familiar with, and the title is Flyways, and it uh, it details some of the, oh, they're sort of mini biographies in some respect, certain parts of the book about the people that were the pioneers in waterfowl management uh, across North America. And there's a, there's a, a little chapter in there, segment in there about a federal game warden describing some of some of what they encountered in the early days. And, uh, I, you know, I think it might have even singled out some of the states of Illinois, maybe even Missouri and Louisiana as being some, some of the areas of focus where people continued to continue to hunt in the spring or continued to shoot over the lemon. So that's uh, the, the federal game wardens as they began to hit the hit the land, uh, focused in certain areas. And so, yeah, it was certainly a long road and a lot of interesting stories about that and what they encountered. Dale, I know you did a lot of research leading up to this. Anything that you came across with regard to enforcement of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act in those early years? Oh, Mike, just as Ken pointed out, um, it really flew in the face of what people were used to doing. Uh, I'd be surprised if there was... um, enough enforcement during those early years to really have an effect on implementation of the regulation. Um, the number of people on the ground, the, the funds necessary to support people in positions well, were lacking. And uh, I think as we'll find in discussions later, it wasn't until sources of funding became available that uh, some of those efforts, in fact, were, were really enhanced. Probably one of the more important parts of that era, and we'll talk about it, this, I'm sure, as well, is that one of the key reminders was as we got into the 30s and things dried up, people became readily aware that there was perhaps a limit to this previously um, considered uh, no end in sight resource. At this point in time, uh, I think it was just a matter of people getting used to what um, was a pretty dramatic change in what they were allowed to do and who's responsible. There are a lot of things that were happening with regard to migratory birds back in this era. Uh, and, you know, it, it really is a classic era when the foundation for not just harvest regulation of migratory birds was established, but all sorts of other uh, habitat conservation efforts. So we're going to, I'm sure we will reference some of these, but you start to get into the late 20s and you have the Migratory Bird Conservation Act, which began to provide uh, federal funds to purchase land for the purpose of migratory bird habitat protection. And then of course, we, when we get into the 30s, we have other pieces of legislation that come along that, that have some connection, have some definite connections to the harvest uh, and hunters in waterfowl uh, in waterfowl management so we'll get into a few of those dale were you able to were you able to come across any examples of early bag limits early season lengths as we entered the era where waterfowl harvest fell under federal jurisdiction you know perhaps most notably um during the 1920s, for the most part, seasons were relatively liberal. Um, and for the most part, uh, you know, 1921 is an example. The bag limit was uh, 25 on ducks and, you know, 
coot, uh, rails, and so on, 25 in the aggregate among those species, uh, Sora, 50 birds. Um, and so the things were really quite liberal at that point in time. That took a dramatic turn in 1931 when uh, seasons were restricted compared to 107 days and 25 birds in uh, 1930, in 1931 to 31 days and a 15 bird bag. So imagine the way people reacted at that point in time to what had been before, even if federally controlled, a, a really liberal allowance for t uh, taking birds. 1931, 31 days and 15 birds would have uh, perhaps reset uh, the way people thought about this whole thing, about who's responsible, uh, some of the limitations of birds and their distribution and all. The, in the early 30s, seasons were closed on wood ducks and ruddy ducks and buffle heads. Canvas backs and redheads were added in the mid-30s. And so there was a dramatic change in terms of people's perception based largely on changes in habitat and supported by changes in regulations. Pretty stark reminders of of the limitation that uh, just a couple decades before couldn't have been imagined. And Dale, it's worth repeating that some of those closures that you spoke about, wood ducks, uh, now, although they may have continued into the 30s and some of those other species, some of the closures uh, or closures for some species came about as a result of language in the Migratory Bird Treaty, you know, back in, back in 1916. And uh, certainly that reflected the demise of some of those populations, how they had suffered in response to the uh, the overharvest, un uncontrolled harvest. That one of the I, I did find a publication leading up to this where it summarizes, and I know this is available in several different pieces, several different documents, but it it summarizes the the hunting regulations for waterfowl, you know, by year, and as I think this is for Illinois and the 1929, as you, I think you might have even uh, cited these dates and bag limits. The 1929, there were it was a 106 day season with 25 birds. In 1930, with 30, it was 106 days with 15 bird bag limit. And then certainly, as you as you talked about, Dale, in 1931. You want to talk about going from liberal to restrictive? We went from 106 days in one year to 29 and a half days the following year. That half day, this was in for Illinois, um, that half day was related to opening at noon on that first day. Uh, also of note here is that back in those early days, early years, the, in the 20s and even in the early 30s, live decoys were still permitted, bait was still permitted. And this is another time where we can emphasize that some of what we know about waterfowl harvest regulations are controlled by legislation. We talked about the, the allowable dates for when you can even hunt waterfowl, uh, migratory birds that are migratory game birds, is that um, prohibited during the spring that comes from the treaty itself. There are other aspects of waterfowl harvest regulations that are that are brought about by rule or by regulation that, that are promulgated every single year and that may change. And so the live decoys and bait and other methods of take kind of fall into this latter category. And so that's that's some important information for people to be aware of as we go forward in this conversation. There are different things that control aspects of what is allowable with regard to waterfowl 
harvest regulation. Ken, anything anything to add in these early days uh, from your perspective on how the states were, uh, how the federal government was trying to implement harvest regulations and any kind of continued opposition from uh, from hunters or anything of that nature before we move into the 30s? No, not really, Mike. I think Dale's covered that really well, and you've brought out some uh, some really really great points. Uh, I think it I think it's probably important, and and I know this will be a, a a big part of the discussion when we move into the decade of the 30s. But uh, uh, even in the in the in the late 1920s, uh, I think that people interested in migratory birds, uh, interested specifically in waterfowl. We're starting to see see numbers decline. They didn't probably fully understand why, but uh, some of the people that uh, saw these occur were the ones that urged the government to take whatever action might be taken. I think it's important to, as we talk about this and we talk about government authority, whether it's national, international, or state, that ultimately the power is, in my opinion, is with the people that... Uh, want to see the government exercise its responsibility uh, in a way that is favorable to the people as a whole. Ken, the early 1930s was significant for a number of reasons. That's obviously the era of the Great Depression, but there were some other ecological things happening that that time, and they certainly uh, had significant bearing on waterfowl populations and some of the actions that followed uh, policy actions as well as uh, science and conservation actions. So uh, just if you can talk about that, the the Dust Bowl era, the, the Great Depression, how all of these things kind of intersected to shine a light on the on the situation facing waterfowl in, in North America. You mentioned the Dust Bowl and uh, probably if we looked at at waterfowl, particularly during this early period, and we looked at uh, what impacted populations of waterfowl, the Dust Bowl of the 30s that led to declines in waterfowl that were obvious to anybody who had an interest in it uh, was seeing this occur. And again, back to the issue that I made earlier about the power of being in the people, the people took this into their responsibilities uh, in moving forward, there were lots and lots of conservation organizations, including Ducks Unlimited, that were formed in the 30s. There were efforts made to better understand waterfowl, uh, formation of co-op units through the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which was a partnership between the federal government and the states, put us in a position where we could do the research that was necessary better to understand the only thing we probably really understood during this period is that waterfowl numbers were on the decline. There were still fairly liberal harvest regulations in the late 20s. And the conclusion that could be made at that time, mostly because of lack of information and lack of knowledge, was that uh, we must be killing too many birds. When you go back to that era, there wasn't a great deal known about waterfowl population dynamics, waterfowl ecology, uh, our, our waterfowl scientists, our waterfowl professionals across the world today will know that a lot of the literature that we have uh, really began to take shape in the, uh, well, perhaps in the 30s. And prior to that, you have to imagine that, you know, the federal government had said, all right, we need... We need to have jurisdiction over this resource. We need to be the ones uh, setting regulations for the harvest. And then once they achieve that, they're probably like, oh, crap. How do we 
how do we how do we go about implementing regulations that are biologically justifiable? Dale, I have to imagine in some respects it was kind of like flying by the seat of our pants. Ken, you you referenced that the 1930s became an era when we realized we need to learn a lot about this resource, not just because of what was happening environmentally with the Dust Bowl and and the the strain that it brought to the habitats that waterfowl depend upon, but also because of the need to understand allowable harvest regulations and their impact. So Dale, did you, well, I know you looked into this a lot. Whenever the Migratory Bird Treaty Act came about, it gave the, I believe at the time, the Secretary of Agriculture, you correct me on this if I'm wrong, the the authority to set regulations. What type of information were they using? Do we know uh, back in those days to set regulations? Because all of this ultimately led to the recognition that we, hey, we, we need to learn a lot more. What do we know about those early days, Dale? You know, as we mentioned, it wasn't until uh, the early 1930s that we're really very much in terms of restrictions on season length, bag limit, that type of thing. What's notable, and as early as uh, 1920, 1921, um, the Secretary of Agriculture, um, you know, through a, a committee, um, a Migratory Bird Treaty Act Advisory Committee, uh, that included partners and so on, were really more focused on the methods by which birds could be taken. And so, you know, a decade prior to the restrictions in season length or bag limit, um, there was an effort to say, here's how you can take birds. And so they could be taken during an open season, which was defined. They identified certain species that could or could not be taken. Could only be taken by a gun not larger than 10 gauge fired from the shoulder, in other words, not a punt gun, might be taken during an open season from land or water with the aid of dogs and use of decoys from a blind or floating device. So the, the effort during that early decade prior to the 30s was to define how birds could be taken or not taken, um, whose responsibility it was to do that. And so, as you pointed out, Secretary of Agriculture ultimately um, approved by a proclamation of the president uh, was how those those uh, those seasons were implemented. And what we knew biologically was really really limited. Uh, one evidence of that is that the nature of seasons that were set at that point in time were done by latitude. So northern states had a season set somewhat earlier. So from Maine all the way across to Oregon was one latitude, one band, if you will, of states that had a different season from those that were mid-latitude, from those that were south. So it wasn't oriented on the biology necessary as it was on birds' availability for hunting. Um, so it's really kind of interesting that it took a decade to define how birds could be taken before we really began to take, pay attention to when why, what was the biological foundation and the like? You know, Dale, it's interesting that you say that. There was, I was walking the halls here, maybe I was in the library here at DU headquarters uh, some months back and I found, I found a map and it showed, it had these broad zones, uh, east-west zones that, that kind of, um, that were defined latitudinally as you, as you talked about there. And I, I looked a bit more closely at it and it was the zones for the early federal waterfowl harvest regulations. And that was pretty fascinating to see. And it's completely understandable why they would have taken that approach because the Migratory Bird Treaty Act itself in giving the authority of the Secretary of Agriculture to set waterfowl harvest regulations uh, 
directed that individual to to set those, quote, from time to time, having due regard to the zones of temperature and to the distribution, abundance, economic value, breeding habitats, and times and lines of migratory flights of such birds. So that was the, the zones of temperature was specifically referenced in the Migratory Bird Treaty Act as one of the basis, bases for setting uh, waterfowl harvest regulations by zones, which I thought was pretty fascinating. I, another one of those things that I'm not sure I realized was that explicit or that was carried out that explicitly in those. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. In those early days. The next thing I want to talk about, uh, and Ken, maybe I'll go to you for this. Uh, the As we get into the 1930s, it's probably important that we touch on this. It's not so much a waterfowl harvest you know, regulation, allowable take type of thing, but it is, it's certainly something that is of utmost importance uh, for, for waterfowl habitat conservation and for waterfowl harvest in general. And that is the, an act that was passed in 1934, the Migratory Bird Hunting Stamp Act, uh, commonly known as the Duck Stamp Act. It was later amended, the name of it was changed to the Migratory Bird Hunting and Conservation Stamp Act that came about in 1934. And tell us, the, Ken, the significance of that and what it actually was designed to accomplish. Well, uh, of course, this was right in the middle of the Dust Bowl era of the 30s. It was when the awareness of the demise of waterfowl during that time frame became so prevalent among people who had this interest. And they also had begun to learn during this period of time that habitat that was important to waterfowl was being greatly altered, destroyed, made less desirable. And there was a realization that uh, there needed to be some source of revenue that could be generated that would help establish a habitat base uh, for the long-term sustainability of this resource. And that was the primary basis of, of passing this act. Probably at the time, it was not considered as important as it has proven over years, but it also became a source of identifying who were people that hunted waterfowl. Where were these people? How many of were there? What was their harvest? So the, the, the original intent of this was to generate money to protect and preserve habitat through the federal government, uh, the ultimate benefit of it uh, far exceeded that and continues to do so over the years. And I wanted to mention that, Ken, because of its intersection with hunters, it's it's required by hunters age 16 and, and older, waterfowl hunters age 16 and older. Uh, and, and as you said, it is certainly a phenomenal source of financial resources that have helped conserve, protect habitat for 
for waterfowl, but also many, many what migratory birds and other wetland dependent wildlife uh, beyond that. So certainly bears mentioning. And this is, you know, the, again, the 1930s is an era where we started to realize real uh, quite quickly that we needed more information. We needed greater scientific understanding of waterfowl populations. Uh, matter of fact, the first the first attempt at an at a duck census, I believe, was Dale was at nineteen thirty five. The International Wild Duck Census of nineteen thirty five. Do I have that right? Yes, that was the the first first attempt. And that's pretty remarkable. Thinking about you know the the waterfowl breeding population and habitat survey that we know today did not become fully. Uh, operational until 1955, but 20 years prior to that, we were attempting to census the wild duck population that was conducted in the fall, I believe in August, if I remember correctly, and across some of the, the prairie provinces, and then maybe North Dakota, South Dakota, and Minnesota. It's almost mind-boggling to think that we'd be trying to do something like that back in the day, but again, it just goes to demonstrate the the insightfulness and the the determination of of these people to try to enumerate a resource over such a vast area, our our desire for information was growing. Another key piece of legislation that was passed that that certainly carries tremendous importance to this day was in the late 1930s, was the uh, Federal Aid and Wildlife Restoration Act, commonly known as the Pittman Robertson Act, and it was it brought about an excise tax on firearms ammunition, and I think later archery. I'm not exactly sure of all the details of that. That's a podcast in itself. I'm just realizing we can talk about that. But it began to provide federal resources that the state could match and then use for various wildlife conservation actions. And in fact, uh, my reading tells me that those funds were in some in some areas uh, very influential in allowing states, individual states, to begin to engage with the federal government on uh, collaborations around the annual setting of waterfowl harvest regulations. As a reminder, Dale, you've made it known that the Migratory Bird Treaty and Treaty Act uh, kind of by default had seasons closed on these migratory game birds, and they become open only when is it is authorized and passed by the by the authorities given that power in each of these countries. And so um, so we, we get into this era in the 30s where we're beginning to see the need for greater coordination, greater cooperation. And and then, so where do we go from the 1930s? Uh, Dale, let me go to you to this. Once we, we have these key pieces of legislation that are beginning to build the foundation of, uh, of waterfowl conservation as we know them today, where do we go from the 1930s? What are some of the next key events that we need to be aware of? I think probably most notably, Mike, and you mentioned it, uh, was as we entered this era of needing to know the biology behind the resource first, as you mentioned in the, the mid thirties uh, with the wild duck census, uh, well, how many are there and where are they? And so anybody who spent any time flying surveys at all, you just have a hard time imagining the logistic constraints of trying to fly across Canada, uh, given fuel, the aircraft of the day and so on, just to find out how many birds there were. And when you look back at that report, it's really pretty amazing that, uh, that we were able to uh, develop the amount of information that they could from that, uh, from that survey. What's notable is that as we got into the 40s and uh, Frederick Lincoln's information uh, from bird banding uh, were applied to 
the flyway concept that ultimately in the late 1940s was applied, we began to think differently about waterfowl, where they came from, where they went, and how that applied to our understanding and application of regulations. Um, and so I think probably most notably uh, was uh, the development of, of knowledge about duck biology. A lot of the food habits work was done during that time. Uh, certainly the, the banding and the, the knowledge about migration corridors, uh, some of the work from Bell Rose in the late 40s through the mid 50s, uh, further defined the, our knowledge of where birds come from, where they go, which helped us further zero in then on flyways and the flyway concept. Certainly post-war, as, um, as the states began to engage uh, first technically and then ultimately administratively in waterfowl harvest management, um, we saw an era where, where you had more individuals with greater talent um, and better training becoming involved with waterfowl management. This was not just waterfowl harvest management. It was waterfowl management related to habitat, related to uh, regulation, certainly. Interestingly enough, related to people and some of the early references to understanding that people were part of this equation. Something mentioned uh, by Ken earlier was something that uh, maybe we don't realize until we go back and look at some of the uh, work by Aldo Leopold, for example, that acknowledged that people were a key part of this, this, um, this equation as well. Dale, there is one thing that we that we probably need to cover in a bit more detail here. I think you've referenced it, uh, but this uh, I thank you for all of that laying the, the the groundwork for the the next conversation and where we go after this. But but there is something that I realized I forgot to ask. Maybe we need to put a finer point on here, and that is some of the regulations. We talked about how some of what we are allowed to do for in waterfowl harvest is dictated by by legislation, and some by annual rulemaking or periodic rulemaking. The the mid nineteen thirties was a pretty significant time in this respect, and I believe you even referenced the presidential proclamation. But but there were a few key developments back then, like uh, the, related to live decoys and bait and maybe a few other things. What about some of those regulations that were brought about by rule or proclamation in the 1930s do we need to make sure we cover here? Well, certainly. And you know, we discussed that a little bit earlier is that uh, they identified uh, maybe more importantly what could be done. Uh, so imagine uh, the question of what do you mean by taking? And so just defining what was meant by take said, well, you can use decoys, you can use a dog, you can do it from, from land or water, uh, can do it from a blind and so on. What you can't do is you can't bait. Ultimately, uh, live decoys were a key part of it as well. And so a lot of it began to define not what you could do so much as what you could not do in terms of the capture, killing, possession, sale, purchase, and all that type of thing. So it was an era where we, we really began to come to grips with what we meant by take, and that's probably notable. Dale, I'm looking at a table here, and for those that are, uh, a lot of times we get the question, well, when did this change, or when? what year did, was, did that come into effect? And I'm looking at this table, and if this is representative of the federal, um, well, which I guess it would have been representative of the federal uh, regulations at the time. It looks like 1935 was the, uh, well, 1934 
would have been the last year that live decoys were permitted. And even prior to that, there had been a limit imposed on the number of live decoys, at least here for Illinois in this table I'm looking at, the limit in 1932, 33, and 34 was 25 live decoys. You could not use any more than that. But then in 1935, they were not permitted. Uh, bait was not permitted after 1935. And then also the three-shell law came into effect, it looks like, in 1935. So that was a pretty key year in terms of some of the regulations as we currently know them and whenever they uh, they were actually brought in into effect. Uh, Ken, any, anything to add from your perspective on some of those regulations, anything that we've missed here in the, in the 30s? A couple of things that I would mention, Mike. Uh, first of all, I think it's important to point out that the waterfowl survey, the duck survey that was done uh, across the breeding areas uh, of Canada was done by More Game Birds in America, which was the precursor of Ducks Unlimited. And I think that survey, and, I, and I'm like Dale, I, I didn't fly as, haven't flown as many hours of surveys as Dale did, but uh, I flew enough to know that, wow, the people that did that survey, that designed that survey, uh, were way, way ahead of their time. But I think the information from that survey not only gave us an idea of how the duck population may be in existence at that time, but more importantly, it pointed out the demise of habitat. This was a period of time when they flew miles and miles and miles and saw lots of potholes with no water in them, no water in them, no ducks in them. Uh, and this actually led and began the understanding that habitat, and particularly habitat on the breeding grounds, is very important. That's why when Ducks Unlimited was formed in 1937, its focus was to raise money in the United States, send it north of the border into Canada, so that Ducks Unlimited Canada could do the habitat work that needed to be done. So I, th I think that's just one point in the in the, the mid-30s, it is important to point out. I think the other regulations, uh, uh, and, and it's interesting that, to note that it was in 1935 that the uh, ban was put on use of live decoys. Uh, as a kid in the early 1950s in Arkansas, it was still pretty easy to find uh, English call ducks, as they were called at that time. And uh, because they were smaller, I know people weren't raising them to eat. Uh, they were raising them to use in duck hunting. So even though we were in a new era of waterfowl management, there was still some resistance on the part of people that uh, wanted to use the old ways. There was a gentleman that I met at Swan Lake National Wildlife Refuge. He didn't work for the refuge, but he was the last person that I knew that actually spent a little jail time for hunting over bait in the spring. And that was occurring in the 50s and 60s. So even though we had reached that era of, of, of changing in regulations and changing, it took uh, quite a little while for that to, for that to take hold like it, like it has now. You know, Mike, it's, it's interesting that, um, that you can find in congressional te testimony of the day, you can find in various publications the things that really identify and characterize the disagreements. Uh, it's kind of interesting that uh, uh, more game birds in America, there's a quote that basically said, this is no time to experiment with substitutes or squabble about petty, unpopular, and unenforceable shooting re restrictions presumed to provide the remedy. That identifies one side of this equation that would have been pretty popular during this era of elimination of banning and the like. At the same time, 
uh, Dr. Kearney uh, from Michigan said, the longer I study waterfowl problems, the more convinced I am of the seriousness of long open seasons. So it really sets the stage for this dynamic, this disagreement, both legitimate, um, that have occurred uh, shoot over the last century. And so it's, it's kind of fun as we look back at that information to gain a sense of these dynamics of, of plenty, the dynamics of restriction, the dynamics of weather and how that influenced how we thought about duck management. Mike, there was one other element in the 1930s that I think is key, uh, uh, and that is that in 1939, the uh, authority for establishing a waterfowl regulation was transferred from the Secretary of Agriculture to the Secretary of Interior. And I think that this was a, a move in a direction to put that in into the part of the federal government that probably was not as impacted maybe by the growing agriculture industry during that period of time. So I think that was a very important element. We started this particular episode by me saying we're going to get into the the period of transition and the period of cooperation between the states and the feds. And although that was kind of happening, beginning to happen, and I think the people were beginning to see the need for that during this this era that we've discussed in the 1930s, we haven't talked much yet about how that actually came to be, how that became formalized. And what I'm going to introduce here is, you know, the, the administrative flyway system that we all know today, uh, that that did not actually come into effect until the late 40s. But believe at the, at, during this era that we're currently talking about the 30s and into the early 40s, the need for that type of greater collaboration was certainly becoming apparent. Uh, and and so the intersection of a greater understanding of the resource, a greater appreciation for their migrations, brought about by some pioneering work by Frederick Lincoln, a, a scientist with the Bureau of Biological Survey back in the day, uh, helped us understand more about these flyway, biological flyway affiliations. And then that kind of sets the stage for discussion about administrative flyways and the process by which states and the federal government collaborates, began to collaborate on the setting of annual harvest regulations. And I think that's where we want to take the conversation next. I think we need to wrap up here, though, and we're going to ask Dale and Ken to rejoin us here on another episode in the future. We've got uh, quite a bit more to go. I that, we may end up with a dozen episodes by the time <laughs> everything is said and done, but this is a pretty interesting topic. You know, there's a lot of material to cover. We're going to miss a lot of it, but we're going to try to touch on as much as we can in the time that we have uh, that we have available to us. So, Ken and Dale, thanks again for joining us, and look forward to welcoming you welcoming you back on a subsequent episode. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, Mike. A very special thanks to our guest on today's show. They've been the guest on the first three episodes of this series related to waterfowl harvest management, Dale Humberg and Ken Babcock. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the great work he does on all of these episodes and getting them out to you. And of course, to you, the listener, we thank you for your support of the podcast, for spending your time with us, and most importantly, your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks.
You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.